Um, yeah, my name is Eric, and I'm a pastor here at our church, and it's my privilege to preach God's Word for us today. Um, uh, please take out your own copy of God's Word and any note-taking materials that you need, whether physical or digital. Uh, if you are using digital devices, please turn off all notifications and put aside any distractions uh, as best as we can so that we can give our hearts and our full attention to the preaching of God's Word. Let me pray for us again, and we'll jump in. God, we are your people, and you are our God. So as you speak to us, your word, give us ears to hear hearts that are willing to receive and to respond, not only with just mere understanding, but in giving our whole lives to the one who has redeemed us by his blood. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray all this in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we are currently in part 44 of our sermon series called Rediscover Jesus, where we're going through the gospel account of Luke together. So today's sermon is titled, Take Care How You Handle God's Word. Have you ever been to a restaurant where there was a sign that read, no food, outside food or drink? Yes, okay. I'm not sure how we feel about that sign, but uh, there was an occasion where my family went out for lunch at a restaurant where there was that sign put up. Uh, after we had finished our meal and after we had paid our bill, our kids asked for chocolate crackers to eat. So as we opened up uh, chocolate crackers to give to our kids, one of the waiters uh, came over and said something like, I'm so sorry, but no outside food is allowed. Tina and I were just a bit dumbfounded because, you know, we're quite sure that the no outside food or drink rule wasn't meant to be applied for kids' snacks after the bill has been paid and the customers are about to leave. You know, that rule is supposed to apply to those who would bring their own food and drinks from home or another restaurant so that they, would have, uh, they wouldn't have to purchase food or drinks at that particular restaurant. So at least in my own perception, it felt like a mishandling or misuse of that rule. And it honestly left us feeling a bit sour. We asked our kids to quickly finish the rest of their crackers, and then we left. And so unfortunately, that one waiter's mishandling of the no outside food or drink rule hindered us from wanting to enter through the doors of that restaurant again. Now, it's one thing to mishandle a restaurant rule, but it's an entirely different level to mishandle God's word. And it's one thing if the consequence is not entering into a restaurant again, but it's on an entirely different level if the consequence is not entering the kingdom of God at all. And that's what we're going to look at more today. So the one thing for us today is this. Take care how you handle God's word so as not to hinder others from entering God's kingdom. Take care how you handle God's word so as not to hinder others from entering God's kingdom. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 45 to 52. Luke chapter 11, verses 45 to 52. <clears throat> uh, just to give a bit of context before we jump into today's passage, in the passage immediately before this, a Pharisee invites Jesus over to dine with him, with his other Pharisees and, and lawyer friends. And as they're about to eat, the Pharisee that invited Jesus is astonished that Jesus doesn't perform the traditional but not scriptural hand-washing ritual to ensure that his hands are ceremonially clean before eating. In response, Jesus gives three woes or warnings or indictments against the Pharisees, where he basically charges them of only being outwardly devoted to God while being inwardly full of greed and wickedness. And he calls them fools for thinking that they can fool God with such outward cleanliness while their hearts remain unclean. 
And that's where we are in today's passage as we'll continue to see Jesus' interaction with another group of people that were dining at that table at the Pharisee's house with Jesus. So let's read Luke chapter 11, verses 45 to 52. It says this. One of the lawyers answered him, and that's Jesus, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. This is God's word. We'll look at this passage in three parts where we'll see the three woes or three indictments that Jesus charges against the religious lawyers. He says that they are guilty of adding burdens to God's word, verses 45 to 46, guilty of killing prophets of God's word, verses 47 to 51, and lastly, guilty of depriving people of God's word, verse 52. So first, guilty of adding burdens to God's word. Verse 45 again says this, One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. The first thing we need to realize is the distinction and the overlap between what it meant to be a lawyer and what it meant to be a Pharisee. The simplest distinction between the two is the difference between having a job or profession and having a religious political party, so to speak. For example, you can be a lawyer by profession or a Democrat or Republican by political party. And similarly, in the first century Jewish society, you could be a religious lawyer by profession and a Pharisee or a Sadducee by religious political party. So the lawyers were uh, religious lawyers by profession. It was their job. They were also known as scribes or experts in the law. So all those terms, lawyers, scribes, experts in the law, it can be used synonymously, and you'll find them used synonymously in Scripture. And their job was to give scribal interpretations of the Old Testament law, and it was regarded as authoritative. And it just so happened that many of the lawyers were also Pharisees by religious political party, which is why we often see that the lawyers and the Pharisees are being grouped together in Scripture as the Jewish religious authorities of the day. So as Jesus gave these three woes to the Pharisees, one of the religious lawyers at the dining table respectfully calls Jesus teacher and basically says, you know, many of us lawyers are also Pharisees. So are you saying the same things about us? It sounds like you're including us in your woes against the Pharisees, but I just want to make sure that's really what you mean to say. Now, if someone were to say that to you, How do you think you would be inclined to respond? Maybe, oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Or, I'm so sorry you took it that way. Let me try to clarify. So essentially, the lawyer is giving Jesus an opportunity to excuse the lawyers in his woes against the Pharisees. He's hoping that Jesus will somehow clarify that he's not talking about the lawyers, just the Pharisees. But that's not what Jesus does at all. Instead, he makes what was previously implicit for the lawyers now as explicit as can be. 
and he doubles down with three more woes specifically for the lawyers. Verse 46 says this, and he said to them, or and he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The burdens that Jesus is talking about are all the scribal interpretations that the lawyers added to God's law. Their intention was supposedly to clarify God's law, but it actually added to it. In effect, the scribal interpretations were held to an even higher standard than God's law because their reasoning was that if it was a serious matter to offend the Mosaic law, which was sometimes hard to understand, then it was a more serious matter to offend the scribal interpretations of the law that made everything clear. So basically, all these scribal interpretations of the law were not just mere suggestions of how to practice the law, but they were effectively laying down new laws on top of, the, the, uh, on top of God's law. Uh, just to give one example, on the Sabbath day, the Mosaic law states that they are not to do any work. So to ensure that no work was being done on the Sabbath, there were 39 classifications of labor listed out with each category having many subdivisions of minute prohibitions. And within one of those subdivisions, they forbade, they prohibited the carrying of anything equal to or heavier than a dried fig, which was considered the standard measure of human food. So on the Sabbath, you were were permitted to carry something that weighed less than a dried fig. But if you happened to put it down and pick it up again, you would have been liable of breaking the Sabbath because you already reached your quota uh, of what was permissible to carry for that day. You picked it up, that's your quota. You put it back down, you pick it up again, you double the weight, you broke the Sabbath. You know, eventually, these scribal interpretations grew to a list of no less than 6,000 laws on top of God's law. So you can begin to imagine how burdensome these added laws were to the average Jew. In essence, the religious lawyers did not rightly handle God's word. Now, you may be thinking, why would people do such a thing? How is that even helpful? But even as we're asking that, we should recognize that as followers of Christ, we can subtly fall into adding to God's word as well. For example, Scripture says that we are to meditate on God's word and store it up in our hearts. But we can then add to it by saying that we must read and meditate on Scripture every morning. Now, that's actually been my practice pretty much ever since I became a Christian. I read the Bible, I pray every single morning, and I would highly recommend that we do that. But nowhere does Scripture command that we read the Bible every morning. The principle of regular Bible intake is definitely all over Scripture. But Scripture does not command daily morning Bible reading, even though, again, I would highly suggest it. You know, others read and meditate on Scripture during their lunch breaks or in the evening before they go to sleep, and there's nothing wrong with that. And as much as daily morning Bible intake has been a discipline throughout my Christian life, I've also missed a few days here and there. Now, is it a sin to miss a day of Scripture reading and meditating on God's Word? I think we all know that the answer is no. But some of us are very reluctant to really believe it. We feel especially guilty when we miss a morning of Bible reading. And and perhaps you judge others who who say they've been really struggling with reading the Bible each day. 
Again, don't get me wrong. I am all for daily morning Bible intake. I think it's a great practice. But we must be careful not to make that a new law by which we judge ourselves and everyone around us when there is no such law in Scripture. Another example is that Scripture undoubtedly calls every follower of Jesus Christ to make disciples. But then we can say that making disciples means that we must meet with someone one-on-one on a weekly basis where we discuss the Bible, go through accountability questions, and go through a certain curriculum. You know, I've done all of that before, and those are great practices. And yes, that is one way to disciple someone. But nowhere does Scripture command that we need to meet with someone one-on-one on a weekly basis to do a list of things together. The principle of making disciples which means to intentionally help someone else to follow Jesus, is definitely all over Scripture. But aside from the primary context of the local church, Scripture does not command a certain personal discipling methodology. Are Christians in sin if they have not met up with someone this past week, one-on-one to share personally, study the Bible, pray together, and hold each other accountable? Again, I think we all know that the answer is No. But some of us are very reluctant to really believe it. Perhaps we pride ourselves in all the people that we're meeting and that we're pouring into, and then we judge those who aren't meeting up with people on a weekly basis. But are sleep-deprived mothers who are nursing their newborns supposed to suck it up and just meet one-on-one with another sister this week, or else they're sinning? Are we to expect that working adults will disciple the same way as university students and high school students? or singles compared to those who are married with young kids? You know, discipling will and should look different for each of us. The primary question is not, have you discipled in such and such a way? But can you self-consciously, sincerely say that you're being intentional about helping others to follow Jesus? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. Am I intentional about helping others to follow Jesus? You know, that may look like meeting one-on-one with someone each week to intentionally ask each other accountability questions, but it may also look like having intentional conversations right after Sunday celebration, talking about the sermon, or right after life group or during life group where we're discussing and applying God's word in our lives, inviting people over meals at your place or going out to eat with them and sharing personally about your struggles and how your relationship with Jesus makes all the difference, running errands with others and having more intentional conversation about what it looks like to follow Christ in in your respective lives. It can look like so many different things. You know, God has undoubtedly called every believer to make disciples. But we must be careful not to make a certain form of making disciples a new law by which we judge ourselves and everyone around us when there is no such law in Scripture. And perhaps there are other ways we do this, and I'm sure there are. We all have a tendency to mishandle God's word, adding to it and using it as a standard to measure ourselves and others. You know, we're not using God's word to measure ourselves and others. We're using our additions to God's word as our standard. And this should give us pause to examine our lives and our thinking to see where this might be the case. We all have this tendency. But an important question to ask ourselves is this. Why do we do this? Why do we have a tendency to supposedly clarify but really add to God's word, establishing for ourselves and other standards that are simply not in Scripture? 
You know, we may think that it's because we're zealous for God's word and that these are just the best ways to live out God's word. No doubt that's what the religious lawyers thought about themselves. But in our heart of hearts, I think the root reason we do this is because in our sinful nature, we're all self-righteous. We all have a default works righteousness mentality where we think that it's by our own good works that we make ourselves acceptable. And so we unwittingly turn God's law into something more bite-sized that we can achieve on our own. You know, it's easy to think that we're loving God if loving God is all about reading the Bible every morning. It's easy to think that we're loving others if loving others is all about meeting one-on-one with someone each week for some sort of discipling agenda. You know, we can achieve those things and we can convince ourselves that we're not that bad. We're actually pretty good and righteous people because we're achieving all these things that we set out for ourselves. And anyone who cannot live up to those new laws that we've set up for ourselves, they are really the bad ones. You know, if they're struggling reading the Bible every day, they're guilty. They don't love God enough. If they're, if they're not meeting one-on-one with someone each week, they're not loving people. They're the bad ones. But I'm doing all of that. They're the sinners, not us. But can any of us honestly say that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Can any of us read the parable of the Good Samaritan and honestly say that we love our neighbor as ourselves? Can any of us read the Sermon on the Mount and say that we have not broken God's law? If we read scripture honestly, we should see that all of us fall short of God's standards. All of us are sinners. None is righteous. No, not one. In fact, part of the purpose of God's law is to show us just how sinful we really are so that we would finally see our great need for and God's great provision of a perfect law-keeping Savior on our behalf. But like the lawyers, we don't naturally want to acknowledge our sin. We don't want to admit that we're really that bad. And so we unwittingly create more manageable and achievable laws that are not prescribed in Scripture to give the illusion that we're somehow keeping God's law, that we are really good and acceptable people, and it's those others who aren't doing what we're doing who are really the bad and guilty ones. They need the Savior, but we're pretty good by ourselves. So the scribal interpretations of God's law were a source of pride and self-righteousness for the lawyers. But they were also heavy, unbiblical burdens for the people. They weighed them down with guilt and shame. And worse, it says that the lawyers themselves would not touch the burdens with one of their fingers. The New International Version translates verse 46 like this. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you! Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. The lawyers expected much, but they helped very little. They resembled the Egyptian taskmasters who demanded bricks from the Israelites to be made, but then gave them no straw, and then beat them when they couldn't meet the brick requirements. Those were the lawyers. They put heavy burdens on the people, but they would not lift one finger to help them. This is in stark contrast to Jesus, who by the finger of God helped a mute man by casting out a demon from him so that he could speak again, which is what started this entire episode in this chapter. 
Jesus doesn't lay heavy burdens on us and then leave us to carry them on our own. Rather, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is Jesus' yoke easy and burden light? Because he does all the carrying. The gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ is that even though God created us and we are accountable to him in keeping his law, we've all broken his law and we rightfully deserve punishment for our disobedience. But in love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to perfectly obey the law on our behalf, to fully take the punishment of our law-breaking and to resurrect to give us a new heart that desires to obey God from the inside out. So now, if we have repented of our sins and have believed in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then the weight of the law and the weight of our law-breaking fell on him, Jesus Christ. And we are forever forgiven and counted righteous in God's sight. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's everything we hold to. The religious lawyers added burdens to God's law and then expected the people to be able to bear the burden on their own. But Jesus, knowing that none of us could ever bear the weight of God's law, bore it all on himself on our behalf if we would only respond with repentance and faith, giving our lives fully to him. And as followers of Christ, we follow in his footsteps as scripture calls us also to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, as Galatians 6.2 says. The Christian life is not an everyone-for-themselves kind of life, but it's an I need my brothers and sisters to help me and I need to help my brothers and sisters kind of life. And if you're a member of our church, that's the kind of life that we've committed to live together. The fifth commitment in our membership covenant which combines 1 Corinthians 12, 26 and Galatians 6, 2, says this, We will rejoice at one another's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. As spiritual family to one another, we don't just say, follow Christ, and then leave each other to fend for ourselves. But we intentionally help one another to follow Jesus. That's the heart of discipling, and that's the heart of, of Christ, who sympathizes with our weaknesses and provides us mercy and grace to help us in our time of need, as Hebrews 4 says. As followers of Christ, we are not to add to one another's burdens like the lawyers, but we are to bear one another's burdens like Jesus. You know, I know that we don't do this perfectly, and I lament the fact that we don't do this perfectly, but this is the heart that we're committed to cultivate and grow in together as a spiritual family. So the first indictment against the lawyers was that they are guilty of adding burdens to God's word. And the second indictment against them was that they are guilty of killing prophets of God's word. Verses 47 to 48 say this, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Here, the prophets are the Old Testament prophets who spoke God's word to his people. And your fathers are the lawyers' Jewish ancestors who rejected God's word from the prophets and who ended up killing them. So why have the lawyers built the tombs of the prophets whom their fathers killed? Matthew's parallel account gives a bit more insight into the lawyers' thinking. It says this, Matthew 23, verse 29 and 30. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So in their own minds, the building of the prophets' tombs was their way of publicly declaring that their father's murdering of the prophets was wrong. And it was their way of distancing themselves from those wicked deeds, saying we would never have done that. In their minds, it was a way to honor the former prophets of God's word. But that's not how Jesus sees it. He sees their building of the prophets' tombs as consent or agreement with their father's murdering of the prophets. So how does Jesus reach that conclusion? Verses 49 and 51 say this. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. In the Matthew Parallel account, instead of saying the wisdom of God said, Jesus simply says, therefore, I send you prophets and so forth. So Jesus is not quoting a so-called book titled The Wisdom of God, but he is referring to himself as the wisdom of God. Jesus is divine wisdom. Just think, who sends prophets? Prophets speak God's word, so only God sends prophets, at least true prophets. So Jesus is saying, as the wisdom of God, as God himself I will send you prophets and apostles, some of whom you will kill and persecute. Jesus knows the hearts of the Jewish religious authorities and what they will do. You know, earlier in Luke, it was said that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. And in fact, by this point, Jesus has already told his 12 apostles twice that he will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, which is the religious lawyers, and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's already told his apostles, these scribes, these lawyers have rejected me and they will kill me. In other words, here you could say that Jesus is now telling directly to the lawyers how they will reject and kill not only him, the son of God, the wisdom of God, the word of God incarnate, but how they will also kill and persecute others who will send after him. And that's exactly what we see happen throughout the book of Acts and church history. All the apostles, except the apostle John, were martyred. So why is Jesus saying this to the lawyers? He's exposing that they're no different than their forefathers who rejected and killed the Old Testament prophets. Like their forefathers, they will also reject, persecute, and kill the Son of God and all those he sends afterwards to reveal God's word to them. They're just the same. They say they're different, but their hearts are exactly the same, and they're going to do exactly what they said that they would never do. So in effect, their building of the prophets' tombs was hypocritical. They say their forefathers, forefathers were wrong, and they would never do such a thing, but Jesus says that their hearts are the same, and they're actually going to do the exact same things that their forefathers did. And so he says they consent to the deeds of their fathers. And they are just as guilty as them. And then Jesus takes it one step further. He says that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world will be charged against this generation. And then he gives two examples, Abel and Zechariah. 
Abel was the first martyr in Genesis, and Zechariah, who was openly and wickedly killed in the temple, was the last martyr in 2 Chronicles, which is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. You know, our English Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, but in the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, in the original ordering, it, was, it ends with 2 Chronicles. So Jesus is saying, from beginning to end, from the first martyr to the last martyr in the Old Testament, and every martyr in between, their blood is on your hands. This evil generation will be judged guilty as if they killed all the prophets in the Old Testament. But how is that fair? That all the blood of the prophets throughout the Old Testament should be charged against that generation when none of them had actually killed those prophets. Think back earlier in this chapter where Jesus said that the queen of the south and the men of Nineveh will rise up at the day of judgment to condemn this generation because they received something so much more than the queen of the south and the men of Nineveh did. And yet, they rejected. They rejected the greater thing. The queen of the south and the men of Nineveh, they repented, believed, and praised God at the wisdom of King Solomon and the preaching of the prophet Jonah. But behold, Jesus, who is so much greater, he is the king of the kingdom of God and the wisdom of God himself. He's right there in front of them, the greatest one. And they rejected him, and they're going to kill him. That generation had received the greatest revelation of God's word because the word of God was standing incarnate right in front of them, and they're going to kill him. Jesus knows their hearts and how they are set on rejecting and killing him. How can we even begin to compare the worth of the blood of Christ? He's more worthy than our lives. He's more worthy than the blood of goats and bulls. How precious is the blood of Jesus that even the blood of all the Old Testament prophets still falls incredibly short. His life is infinitely worthy. And so arguing from the lesser to the greater, that generation stands guilty of the blood of all the prophets in the Old Testament because they will kill someone infinitely greater than all of them, the Son of God himself. That generation stands guilty of all the prophets and still that doesn't even scratch the surface. But why will they kill and persecute uh, Jesus and those he sends after him. It's for the same reason that their forefathers did. The basic message of all the Old Testament prophets was simply this. Turn away from your sins in repentance and turn towards the Lord in faith. Repent and believe. That was the basic message of every prophet. And their forefathers murdered them for that message. And that was the same message that Jesus proclaimed in his ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that generation will murder Jesus for that message. But why is this message so offensive? Because it confronts us with our sin. It exposes our inadequacy. It tells us that we are not righteous, good, and acceptable in and of ourselves. And this is especially offensive for anyone who thinks that they're really not that bad that it's enough to simply appear clean on the outside while our hearts remain unclean. Rather than repent of our sins, all of us naturally recoil when confronted with them. Just think about someone, if they loved you enough to actually confront you of your sins, was your knee-jerk response to embrace them or to kick them? 
Our tendency is to justify ourselves rather than to have God justify us. We want to feel proud of what we've accomplished by our own blood, sweat, and tears rather than to be humbled by what Jesus has accomplished for us by his blood poured out for us on the cross. Our hearts don't naturally gravitate towards embracing Jesus as our Savior, but we're, we're naturally embittered that anyone would dare confront us with our need for a Savior. We're fine on our own. We're pretty good. You know, that's the sinful seed in all of us that left unchecked by the restraining grace of God gives way to the same murderous intentions that Jesus is exposing here in the lawyers. Now, at this point, it's, it's so easy for some of us to think that this has very little relevance to us because we didn't kill Jesus Christ. We're not that generation. We're not that bad. But just think for a moment. Who does that sound like? Wasn't it the very people that Jesus is charging with all the blood of the Old Testament prophets who said, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets? We wouldn't have done that. That's the same thing that we're naturally inclined to say. It's not relevant to us. We would never do that. If you're not convinced that there's enough evil in your heart to do what the lawyers did in that generation, then you're probably in the most danger of committing something like that. Gordon McDonald was a former president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He was a pastor and the author of many Christian books. But he had an affair with his church secretary, and it led, him, it led to him losing his ministry. By God's grace, his family stayed together, and he was able to reconcile with his wife. But it was especially traumatic because he was a Christian leader who was respected worldwide. Joe Novenson, who is now a pastor, was a seminary student at the time when the scandal happened and went public. And he was wondering, how in the world could someone like Gordon McDonald fall into such wicked sin? So he was audacious enough to contact him and ask Gordon McDonald out for a meal, and he actually agreed to it. So Joe drove from Philadelphia, where he was in seminary, all the way down to New York to have a meal with him. He asked him question after question, and he was just amazed by Gordon McDonald's love for Jesus and his biblical wisdom. Finally, near the end of the conversation, Joe mustered up the courage to ask one last question. He said, Dr. McDonald, how could a man like you, who loves Jesus clearly as much as you do, who believes the gospel as much as you do, who believes the Bible like you do, who had such a rich ministry at the local church level and around the world like you did, how could you have done what you did? And Gordon McDonald said, Joe, you understand that there's enough evil in your heart to destroy the world three times over, right? And Joe said, yes, sir. And Gordon McDonald said, Joe, I didn't believe that about myself, and that's why I fell. I didn't believe that about myself, and that's why I fell. This is a stark warning for all of us. There's enough evil in our hearts to destroy the world three times over. And if we ever begin to forget how sinful we are, how prone to sin we are, we are in for a massive fall. And that should rightfully scare us. We are capable of doing some of the most wicked things, even crucifying again the very Savior that we say that we love. 
And we would be wise never to forget that and not be so proud to think that we would never do that if that was us. So guilty of adding burdens to God's word, guilty of killing prophets of God's word, and the third indictment against the lawyers was that they are guilty of depriving people of God's word. Verse 52 says this, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. The picture that Jesus gives here is of a door that must be opened by a key. And once a door is open, a person can walk through the doorway to enter into the place. So what is the key of knowledge? All throughout this passage, and actually all throughout the chapter and passages before, Jesus has been referring to God's word. The burdens were scribal interpretations of God's word that functioned as additions to God's word. The prophets were messengers of God's word that they were bent on persecuting and killing. And here, the final indictment is that the lawyers took away the key of knowledge, or God's word, from God's people. The key of knowledge is God's word that they took away. And what is a place that the religious authorities did not enter and that they hindered others from entering? Matthew's parallel account gives us insight. It says this in Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So the, the place that a person does or does not enter is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And it's even more emphatically stated here. It's not just you hindered those who are entering, but you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. It's not just being reluctant to unlock the door, but it's somehow it's someone slamming a door in your face. That's what the lawyers were doing to the people by taking away God's word from them. Now, the irony to all of this is that the lawyers thought that they were actually opening up the door to, to understanding God's word. That's why they clarified so much. With, but with no less than 6,000 additional laws, it all began to obscure or block out God's word. It became more about the scribal interpretations of God's word than it was about God's word itself. It just became about what the scribes said rather than what God has said. They took away God's word from his people when God's word is what they really needed to enter the kingdom of God. And so, in effect, they were slamming the door shut, locking it, throwing away the key, and standing in front like a bouncer to block anyone from entering. God's word tells us how to enter the kingdom of God because we can never figure it out on our own. God's word is God's revelation that reveals to us who God is and who we are in relation to God. And from beginning to end, it tells one single story of salvation that moves from creation, fall, redemption, consummation. How God made us, how we disobeyed him and rightfully deserve his judgment. How God has made a way of salvation for his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And how he will one day bring about the restoration and consummation of all his creation. It's a wonderful story of salvation and how our lives fit into all of that. That's what God's word is about. And at the end of Luke's gospel account, the resurrected Jesus appeared to his disciples, and this is what he says in Luke chapter 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then he said to them, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law, the, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he 
opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus does the complete opposite of what the lawyers have done. The lawyers shut the door. He opens their minds to understand scripture. And it's all about him. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. It's when you understand that all of God's word is about Jesus. It's all about how we can't actually follow the law as we ought to because of our sin. And how he, Jesus, is the sin bearer and the law keeper on our behalf. Jesus has done it all. And we simply repent and believe. We respond. The way that we enter the kingdom of God is to repent of our sins, believe in Jesus, and follow him as our Lord and Savior all of our days. That's what God's word is all about. But sadly, the lawyers blocked people from seeing Jesus because they blocked people from even seeing God's word itself. Their scribal interpretations gave the impression that only the experts in the law can understand God's word, but it's too complicated for you. Let me give you 6,000 other things you need to know before you can even get close to God's word. But the irony was that these scribes or lawyers, they themselves couldn't understand God's word. They were completely missing it. They read God's word in light of themselves and what they must do rather than seeing their own inability and recognizing that everything points to Jesus and what he will do to accomplish salvation for sinners. And so, unfortunately, the lawyers not only prevented themselves from entering, but they also prevented or hindered others from entering the kingdom of God. So what does this have to do with us? Is this only for preachers and teachers of God's word? No. Because God holds each of us accountable for rightly handling God's word. All of us, not just preachers and teachers. When Jesus came, he held the Israelites responsible for rightly knowing, understanding, and applying God's word. He constantly said things like, have you not read? Have you never read in the scriptures? Or even you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He expected his people to know what God's word said. And not just Jesus, but Paul wrote the New Testament letters to entire congregations, assuming that they would read and understand, and even instructed them to have other churches read the letters. All throughout scripture, if you are part of God's people, we are all held responsible and accountable for rightly handling God's word. If you're not sure how to do that then, I encourage you to continue to come to Sunday celebration, join a life group where week in, week out, we seek to read, understand, and apply God's word together. You know, perhaps you don't know everyone there or here, you're tired, it's too far. I know there's lots of reasons that we have not to go or come. But I encourage you to make the effort to go because it's a regular place where we can better understand what God's word has to say and where we can grow together as a spiritual family as we're committed to living out God's word together. There are regular opportunities in the life of the church to grow in rightly knowing, understanding, and applying God's word in our lives. But God's word should also continue to reverberate in our homes whether you're single or married, I encourage you to make it a regular practice to read the Bible, pray in light of what you read in God's word, and sing songs of worship to God. And if you have kids, I encourage you to make family worship where you read, pray, and sing a daily part of what you do each morning or each night. I'm not saying that a certain practice of family worship is a must 
This is a suggestion for what is required of parents. Scripture requires parents to know, teach, and discuss God's word with your children on a regular basis. And family worship is a great suggestion, recommendation of how to go about that. Husbands and fathers, please take the lead on this for your families. All you need to do is simply say, and I've done this before with my family, where I first didn't do family worship, but this is basically what I said. I want our family to know, love, and follow God with all of our hearts, and that always begins with centering on his word. I read a little thing about family worship, and I started implementing it. So let's read, pray, and sing each day at this time as a family. And for my family, it's every night. It's part of my kids' bedtime routines, or our whole family's bedtime routine. And then as a husband or father, follow through, initiate following through on that each day. If you're not sure where to begin with that, please talk to other couples and families to learn from and encourage one another to be rooted in God's word in your homes. If you have no one else to talk to, just come talk to me. I will help you in whatever way that I can. But there are people here, fathers, husbands, families, that are trying our best to be, to be rooted in his word. Still, not just in the church and in our homes, but God's word should continue to reverberate in other contexts throughout the week, in our schools, workplaces, gyms, wherever else that we find ourselves. As we understand God's word, it should shape how we view what we do and how we do it. It should influence what's important to us and what we talk about. As followers of Christ, we long to reveal Jesus to those who are around us through our lives and our words, that they might also enter the kingdom of God. You know, everything I just said, I hope as believers in, in Jesus Christ that we long to live that kind of life. But having said all of that, we should recognize that this passage is stated as a warning for us. Remember, the religious authorities took away God's word from themselves before they took it away from others. And I think that for most of us, the danger isn't that others will take away God's word, but you will take away God's word from yourself, your family, and others. You'll do that yourself. You'll rob, deprive yourself, your families, and others of God's word. I think that's the biggest danger for us. Even though God's word is open to us each Lord's Day and throughout the week in life group, we're tempted not to prioritize gathering together under God's word. Even though we have access to God's word in our homes, we're tempted to keep it closed. It's like a decoration in our house. And thereby, we indirectly teach ourselves, our spouses, and our kids that God's word is irrelevant to our everyday lives. Even though we ourselves have entered the kingdom of God, we're tempted to hinder others from God's word. Not necessarily through adding burdens to God's word, but by not sharing God's word at all with people. So as we close, may we not be found guilty of adding burdens to God's word, guilty of killing prophets of God's word, or guilty of depriving people of God's word. Rather, may we be a church that rightly handles God's word rightly knowing, understanding, and applying his word so as to help others to enter the kingdom of God. Here's the life application. There are just a few questions for us to reflect on in light of this passage. First, how have I been adding burdens to God's word? If you're not sure, think about what you often feel guilty about and then ask yourself, is this something that is prescribed in scripture that I am violating? Or is this something I have added to scripture that I feel guilty for not doing? Also, think about what you often judge others for and ask yourself the same questions. 
Second, how have I underestimated the amount of sin that exists in my own heart? What are some sins that others have committed where you say to yourself, I would never have done that? Just remember that pride comes before the fall. That's what the lawyer said before they later had the Son of God himself crucified. What are the seed forms of such sins in your life that you're justifying right now? If you haven't committed adultery, are you justifying pornography and lusting after others? If you haven't committed murder, are you justifying anger, gossip, and bitterness towards others? Third, how have I been depriving myself, my family, or others of God's word? If you're not sure, ask others for their input. Ask fellow brothers and sisters in Christ if they see that God's word is what guides your decisions. Ask your spouse or children if they think that your family prioritizes God's word together. Ask yourself if your friends outside the church know that you're a follower of Christ who loves them and wants them to know Christ too. And then out of love for God and others, let's take steps to get God's word front and center in our lives again. So once again, the one thing is this. Take care how you handle God's word so as not to hinder others from entering God's kingdom. If you're able, can we all stand as we respond to God's word? As part of our worship gathering as a church today, we'll be taking of the Lord's Supper. So in response to God's word and in preparation for the Lord's Supper, I want us to begin to put that life application into practice right away. Can we actually have uh, the life application put on the screen again? Let's reflect and ask ourselves these, these questions. How have I been adding burdens to God's word? How have I underestimated the amount of sin that exists in my heart? How have I been depriving myself, my family, or others of God's word? Let's begin to repent. Let's begin to believe again, distrusting our own wisdom and throwing ourselves upon the wisdom of God in his word throwing ourselves upon Jesus that all of God's word testifies to. And after we have some time to pray, we'll continue to respond to God's word by taking the Lord's Supper as a tangible reminder of where our faith truly lies. Let's pray together.